This is Speaking of Shakespeare, conversations about things Shakespearean. I'm Thomas Dabbs, broadcasting from Aoyama Gakuin University in central Tokyo. If you are joining us on YouTube, you should know that this program is also available on your favorite podcast platform. This talk is with Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies, Hartford College, University of Oxford. This year, the year 2023, marks the 400th anniversary of the first folio of Shakespeare's works. A single publication that, as Emma shows, has an intriguing history in its making and that, after its release and in the following decades and centuries, made Shakespeare, well, the, the Shakespeare that we know, given that roughly half of Shakespeare's plays would have been lost to history were they not preserved for us by this single publication. We will be taking a look at two of Emma's books on the first folio, both re-released with new material. The first is The Making of Shakespeare's First Folio, issued by the Bodleian Library. The second is Shakespeare's First Folio, Four Centuries of an Iconic Book. This series is funded with support from the Aoyama Gakuin University Institute of the Humanities and also with a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. Emma, thank you so much for coming back and thank you for getting up early here. Uh, it's such a pleasure. It's a great pleasure to see you, Tom. Well, I've uh, gone through, you, we have two books that we're going to cover today, and uh, both are reprints and both have new information, and we're going to start with your book that originally came out from the Bodleian Library, and it's entitled The Making of Shakespeare's First Folio, and this is a reprint, and you're going to tell us a bit about it, and it's just out 2003 with a lot of new information. And also reprinted this year because this is the anniversary of the first folio here in 2023 is Shakespeare's first folio, Four Centuries of an Iconic Book. Now, you start out with the actual publication of the, of the first folio, and then the second book goes into a biography, as you call it, a biography of the first folio. And I wanted to say before I hand this over to you that I just absolutely, absolutely love your writing. I know the kinds of weeds that you have to get into, the enormous amount of detail, and no two things are in the same place. And it just reminds me of an old adage, maybe tired or whatnot, of the trapeze artist who talked about how you have to do this difficult work to get to a certain level. And then after that, you have to make it look easy and you make it look easy. And I admire that so much in your writing. And this is such joyful reading. And I usually don't hawk books on this uh, series, but this is such joyful reading. It's full of information, but it's also full of anecdotes. You bring characters to life in this, uh, in both of these uh, books. And I wanted you to maybe begin by telling us what drew you to the first folio. You've been working on this for years. And uh, then let's go into the books and talk about generally what they do. Well, that's so kind of you. I think what I think what drew me to the first folio was, in a way, for someone like me who's really interested in the reception of Shakespeare uh, over the over that long and ongoing period, the first folio is the sort of handover moment in a way 
you know, it's posthumously published. It's the point where John Hemmings and Henry Condell, who were Shakespeare's fellow actors, hand over this work explicitly to us as readers. Um, uh, they address it to the great variety of readers. Uh, it, it's a kind of moment of transfer from being the property of the King's Men or maybe of Shakespeare himself in some um, conceptual way, if not if not in a natural way, to being somehow our property. So it feels um, the most important moment uh, in, in Shakespeare's history uh, and a great place to start um, the, the sort of everything that comes next. And I suppose that's what maybe differentiates some of the work I've tried to do from other work in this area, that I don't think that the first folio is the uh, monument, really, or the fixed point, or the, um, the 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 original we must all go back to. I think this is the permission to do all the stuff mm-hmm. we want to do. Um, and so thinking about how that came about and what we've what we have done with it, how we've taken that permission, um, which is in some ways the permission we've taken with Shakespeare, Shakespeare's works generally. Mm-hmm. But 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 as I discovered, it's often been more explicitly with that book itself. The book has been more than a symbol of Shakespeare. It's been actually uh, the physical or the literal vehicle by which we've taken Shakespeare uh, to the colonies or back into the theatre or we've argued about whether Shakespeare really wrote Shakespeare and all, all those things. So, so the first value for me is a, is the, uh, is, is a kind of, yeah, a wonderful permissive moment um, in, in, in Shakespeare's histories. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I love how it begins. Now we're here with the, uh, uh, the Shakespeare's first folio and you begin with uh, Sir Edward Deering going shopping and this is something that you do you put us in that time and of course you have to pour over this long journal with uh, entry the personal accounting entry which can't be that exciting uh reading and then you draw out a what to me becomes a portraiture of a courtier an aspiring young man who um, did rise uh, and how this ambulatory experience of going through London, the uh, pedestrian uh, experience of a guy simply going shopping, uh, picking up something like we might if we're going shopping in a store, uh, not knowing that this is uh, going to become an extraordinarily valuable item. And yeah, you do this absolutely. throughout. Yeah. I mean, Edward Deering is, is the first person we know to buy the Shakespeare first folio. Uh, in December 1623. <clears throat> and he's also someone who has, as as you say, he goes on uh, to be um, uh, rather a significant um, uh, cleric and sort of uh, participant in the in the Civil War, uh, discourse around the Civil War. But at this point, he's a young, he's a young man um, trying to make uh, connections to do networking and be fashionable in London. And the, the the evidence we have uh, for this part of his life, um, I love is is as you say his account book only. That's all we know about him. Mm-hmm. So it's as if we we were 
you know, our, our biography was being written, you know, by our credit card statements. And you just think, my God, all this woman does is go shopping. Um, and the same, this feels slightly true about Edward Deering. All he does is buy, is buy things and he buys lots of clothes, clothes and, and a sort of outfit for aspiring young man of his sort are very, very expensive. And they help us sort of situate the cost of the first folio, which is much more modest than some of these other expenditure. But he buys small things. He buys marmalade and, um, uh, you know, pays for um, his horse's feed and pays for boat trips across the Thames and all of those kinds of things. Um, yeah, so he he buys Johnson's works, actually, Ben Johnson's works and Shakespeare's in, in, the, same, in the same trip yeah. uh, to London. Um, and and I yeah I, I love that moment. I tried to think about what was London, uh, what was London like? Um, how were people feeling after the end of the um, the Spanish match? The idea that uh, uh, Charles would marry the Prince Charles would marry uh, the Infanta, and this has been a great sort of diplomatic and national um, uh, cause of concern and. Uh, you know, I was able to look up some of the information we've got about the weather. It had been very, very wet. Uh, it was very muddy. London was very muddy. All those kinds of things. And I thought that that um, attempt to particularise a book that has become so um, so much a kind of treasure or a yeah a monument is a, is a, is one way to sort of look at it anew. Well, I, I know that you have done other work in the uh, publishing industry and uh, with other playwrights and also other writers and uh, gauged the pop popularity. And of course, the popul popularity is a complex term, how we talk about it. But in, in talking about it, uh, what it does is it leads us, uh, as you say in uh, the book, to Paul's Cross Churchyard, to the bookstores there, and in particular, the Black Bear for the uh, folio, the White Greyhound, another famous place, but other, this is a line of bookshops that uh, people would uh, would shop. That, that's that's where you went. That's, where you, that's the central area. I think nothing rivals it in London. And also, that's where you went uh, to... Uh, by the books that plays were based upon for years, mm -hmm. even before Shakespeare's time. So there's this long developing area of of a kind of relationship between print and the theater. And yeah. play texts were not that highly valued necessarily. They're in the cheaper quarto form uh, uh, usually. And then we have these two big folio editions, which are, even if it was a cheaper edition, a, a cheaper type of folio edition, they're very expensive to produce and they're big books. And we have yeah. Johnson 1616 and then Shakespeare 1623. And it shows this rise, doesn't it, of the of the value of what people may have thought were just throwaway um, quartos. I think that's I think that's right. I mean we're seeing uh, maybe two two things. One is a a, a development publishers coming to understand, stationers coming to understand uh, what do people want to see in a in a playbook? What makes a playbook uh, a, an attractive thing to buy? Uh, we still don't really know, do we, whether people who bought playbooks had seen the play, mm -hmm. whether they were sort of secondary documents um, uh, serving performance as the primary experience, or whether they were for people who didn't 
couldn't or didn't or wouldn't see see the play in the theatre and were a kind of alternative to it, you know, whether they're a supplement or an alternative. But we can see stationers in really fascinating ways uh, learning about, you know, the, the extent to which people need things like a list of the characters, what mm. later would be called the dramatist personae. Uh, that's um, That starts to become a more standard part of print publication. And it's just one example of how, um, those publications are starting to think more about more about readers and, and what they want. But you're right that these two big folio texts, Ben Johnson's in 1616, which includes masks and poems as well as plays, of course, uh, and Shakespeare's in 1623, they are quite a substantial intervention into that market, into as you say, suggesting that plays are important, that they that they need to be in a format that will last, which is slightly contrary to the more ephemeral feeling that we've had about performance, and perhaps to in some more, in some ways that we as Shakespeareans are still sort of uh, maybe a bit ambivalent about that that Shakespeare is something to be studied and read, and you know thought about seriously, and you sit at your desk and do it rather than. Uh, either you go to the theatre or you have this, you know, slightly more casual relation with a, a smaller pamphlet style style text. Mm-hmm. So this is, um, you know, in some ways it's the book equivalent of the indoor theatres, the Blackfriars, the sense mm-hmm. that theatre itself is becoming um, a more socially uh, select uh, activity. Um, uh, and And it's also the kind of forerunner of, uh, a feeling that Shakespeare belongs on the page rather than first and foremost on on the stage and and as as I say there are that there are great things about that as well as as well as some disadvantages yeah i uh, I think you've made this point, but it's in my imagination I don't want to speculate too much, but I think maybe it seems humanly possible that one of the things that drove uh, the sales of plays early on, of course, you you have uh, dramatic poetry, and you know the average mortal is not going to process, uh, particularly when you get into some of this naughty Shakespearean verse. Johnson, my goodness, the um, the uh, referential the uh, nature of his verse uh, to the city, to a lot of inside jokes sometimes, and all of that. It would have been hard, hard to process, and it seems that. One of the drivers of sales would be just people who say, okay, I want to get this full speech because I heard some really good stuff here and I just want to see what the whole thing is all about. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really interesting um, different sort of new take, isn't it? More modern take on the relationship of, of print to, to performance uh, that may be both playwrights in some, in some cases, you know, the argument would be including Shakespeare and, play readers are interested in the the slightly different form a play can take when you've got all the time you need to go back um and you know dwell on a, on a speech or enjoy work it out or enjoy its intricacies or something so that this is a just as maybe the stationers have got some technical parts of the play that are directed towards readers maybe there's a fundamental way that authors um, and readers both want the, the the experience of reading to allow for more you know a different kind of appreciation of the mm-hmm. plays. Yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's really a really interesting 
um, kind of recent revisiting of that old question of whether Shakespeare wanted his plays to be to be printed. Right, right. Well, if we go into the book a bit, you look into the structure. You, you treat it as a book at first. What is this book? And remind us, of course, that you would buy the leaves, but you would bind the book uh, sometimes, well, in the Black Bear in the same shop, but it was a separate deal. You, you, It wouldn't be like now where I'm, this is for my students, where you would buy a book and it's already bound. Uh, so we start with uh, that kind the, that kind of consideration and then look into the paratextual work. The, mm. How is it arranged? Uh, the table of contents, the uh, style of print, how things are put together. All of these things uh, that you, uh, in I think, some very remarkable ways, tie to interpretation. When we do get to the text, all of these things uh, have influence on the text, and also influence on the influence the what has been the long reception of this text, its durability. Of this, yeah. I'm sorry, this edition, this uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, there's been all kinds of really um, interesting. Uh, there's all kinds of interesting stuff to say about the the prefatory material, all the material before we get to the Tempest, which is the first play, mm -hmm. uh, uh, as we know in the in the first folio. Um, and the more you look at those pages, um, you can see that there's a. I don't think that they are planned necessarily with the same. Um, confidence and assurance of the whole, maybe as the pages uh, with the text in. There's quite a lot of wasted paper. There's a slightly random order of things. Um, uh, it feels to me a little bit as if they were unsure about who was going to write the puffs for it and quite how that was all going to, how many pages they were going to take and quite how that was all going to be uh, presented. And there is a there is something quite odd about, you know, the question of why this book from the king's men was not dedicated to the king, um, or, or didn't have a you know slightly more high profile de dedicatee, and why there are so Johnson is very prominent in the Ben Johnson is very prominent in that prefatory material, um, which is. Uh, uh, which is really important and and may some people feel have had much more to do with a much more of an editorial role on the whole thing, mm. which may well be true. There is a sense though that Johnson is an absolute renter quote at this time. You know he acknowledges that himself, mm -hmm. and he says of the eccentric Jacobean traveller Thomas Coriat, you know more or less that he is not of an age but for all time too. So it's. You know, J Johnson is definitely there, but apart from him, no other playwrights, no nobody else, not Fletcher, who is, you know, you would think might be a, a, a kind of participant in this homage or this kind of collection uh, of his uh, collaborators. So there are some really odd things, I think, about about the way that book is is presented. Mm -hmm. And throughout, I think I, you know, like lots of other people have looked at this book felt that the moments when it doesn't, it seems as if it seems to lack confidence or it doesn't quite work or there's an error or something has not been done consistently. That's just a little sort of, you know, the cracks that let the light in, in a way. That's the, that's the, they're the points where you can kind of get under the skin of the, of the book a bit and, and try to imagine the people who put it together rather than that sense of it just 
you know, that almost biblical sense of it just being sort of given down from the from the mountaintop and, um, you know, therefore it, 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 it's perfect in all its all its limbs, as they say. Yeah, um, I uh, it's just fascinating to me as a book. And it also has done, <laughs> of course, you know, well known to us, but so many of Shakespeare's play would plays would not be available, whether he's considered them the, fully the author or collaborator or whatnot, without this, uh, without this folio, that would be uh, half of the canon, basically, roughly. Yeah. And that would have just, it, it wouldn't have taken. Uh, no, that's right. You're absolutely right. I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't all be teaching you know, the Shakespeare that we teach, I don't think Shakespeare would be a global phenomenon yeah. based on the scattered quarto editions that were in print, um, you know, up to 1622. Yeah. It's interesting, we'd also have a Shakespeare who looked more prominently a playwright about English history. Those are plays which are very prominent in the market quarto marketplace, uh, a little bit less on comedy and, and less again uh, on on tragedy, so just the shape of of what what we thought of Shakespeare would 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 have changed, and I think that focus on history would have combined with the kind of uh, contingency, in a way, of this first folio book at different points in time to mean that Shakespeare seemed a more more parochially English writer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, than than, of course, the reputation and the the reach that his his works have in translation and in adaptation, as well as in 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 their first forms for half. And it's been a great thing for the careers of many scholars well, to, quite, be, to able, be able to compare. I mean, there's a whole industry of editors who have that folio text. Well, sometimes you just have the folio text, but when you do, when you have prior text, you know, famously Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet, then there becomes this uh, in, endless and in the enduring questions of editorial intervention and choice yeah. and fascinating to me, uh, heated very often by, uh, yeah. you know, which one is the most authoritative? Is there a bad quarto or is yeah. there such thing as a bad quarto? That, yeah. All of this stuff for, well, nerds like us, yeah, it's just absolutely. absolutely fascinating because it, it goes into the, it goes into deeply philosophical ideas and thoughts on how to how to do a lot of things. It absolutely does, and and lots lots of our editorial practice took its cue from John Hemmings and Henry Condell, mm -hmm. who say in the preface, uh, some of these plays have been available already. Uh, but you've been abused with stolen and surreptitious copies. Mm -hmm. And now here they are perfect in their absolute in their numbers, perfect um, as, as he conceived them. And I suppose part of what's interesting to look at those paratexts more widely rather than just extract that quotation is to see whether we think rhetorically Hemings and Condell are um, uh, reliable witnesses of, um, about textual transmission, or whether they have a, a, other um, uh, axes to grind, other other uh, aims here. And what's really clear about that epistle is that they that their aim is to get people to buy, and they are saying to people, which is absolutely true. The flip side of saying we would have lost eighteen plays if we didn't have the first folio is that if you were a keen play buyer like Edward Deering. 
um, you you might well own 18 of these plays already. Mm-hmm. And we all know as consumers, there is something quite annoying about having to pay for a whole lot of stuff, much of which we already have, in order to get, you know, a, a, another part that we don't have. Um, and part of it, I think a part of what Hemmings and Condell are saying is, even if you've already got them, these ones are better. So it's worth it's worth buying. I mean, it's interesting that the the, the folio of um, Francis Bowes called the Beaumont and Fletcher folio of 1647, that has an explicit preface saying none of these plays has ever been printed before. And that seems um, maybe a kind of, you know, another element in this uh, in, in in this line of how we interpret. I I, I fully see that. And um, <clears throat> uh, another thing that I just wanted to mention briefly, you bring this in and we're sort of segueing a bit away from the uh, making of the first folio into your, your biography. But <clears throat> when you do these comparative studies of folio version versus earlier version and so forth, there are textual variants uh, abundantly uh, in there. But another thing that I have seen more uh, lately, you know, in the past 10, 15 years, is that there, with Hamlet, with Romeo and Juliet, the years that separate the quarto version and the folio version, there might be a joke that was funny in 1601 that no one would get in uh, 1623, you know, just in our own time. Uh, I, you know, I see how jokes and references to popular culture age out so quickly. So, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. a really interesting thing is if you look back over your lectures and think, here's my lecture. And yeah. my, you know, my goodness, why was I sort of talking about that? That was that, you know, that was where it was going to land, you yeah. know, in 2019 or whatever. It's not going to do that now. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think we are more and more thinking um, you know, so, so the energy of the te- of textual debates has been in these quarto folio variants, as, as you say, and different ways of conceptualizing those um, differences and, and therefore what the editorial practice based on them should be. I think there's now quite a lot of interest in folio only texts mm-hmm. and um, the, ex- the extent to which we, we think they preserve you know, if we think of a play like Twelfth Night, um, we we know that um, uh, John Manningham uh, sees it at the turn of the 17th century. We've given it a date around 1612, something like that. Then we've got this text of 1623. Mm-hmm. And our, traditionally, our work has been to uh, find the features of that text which corroborate the, de- the, the, the date, you know, 20 years previously. But it's much more likely that Twelfth Night, to some extent or another, represents um, that, you know, slightly new joked version of a play, you know, that's been in the repertory um, for uh, 20 years, perhaps since its first performance. Uh, so we're probably a bit further than we think from the original and 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 therefore uh that whole notion of original perhaps for a play script is is a bit less is is less than helpful you know if, if we think that play as soon as you start to talk about these works as scripts 
um, yeah. something sort of shifts in your brain, doesn't it? And of course, then they become malleable. Uh, they become provisional. They're in motion. They're always um, uh, being sort of slightly changed according to who picks them up and in what context. Um, yeah. uh, and that's, you know, that's that's that too is quite a liberating way to think about these textual questions. We're not trying to settle one single text yeah. because that's not really, that's not true to the life of a play. Uh, the life of a play has uh, often, uh, if it's a successful play, you know, m- more than one authentic um, sort of performance or or moment, um, yeah. uh, and 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 will change and, and be changed and adapted in small adapted in small ways or, or bigger ones in order to make the most of that moment. Yeah, well, in a prior talk I had with you, this came up, and you, I I I fully agree. I'm. It's just almost. Um, just absurd to think that there was some stable text that made it through the theater, made it through a theater run and it's a conception and it's night to night performance that there weren't changes, that there are little collaborations that are going on all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and and there are ways in which I think, you know, although um, editing Shakespeare editing has become, much more attentive to questions of performance. Mm-hmm. There is a way in which editing is sort of fundamentally opposed to performance. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's about establishing a, a text, a fixed text on the page, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is the very opposite of a, a, a script that's going to um, enable uh, different kinds of performance. Mm-hmm. Well, you present many examples when you're talking about text, uh, textuality. And uh, one example that I have uh, that I think kind of illustrates, and you may have put it in and I, I've forgotten, but I think that it illustrates this point is Midsummer Night's Dream, where the uh, philostrate, uh, I tend to say philostrate, I don't know, maybe it's been uh, in Japan too long, but philostrate uh, uh, is portrayed in the earlier Quarto version as the master of rebels. It's very clear. And there seems to be a joke on Tilney there, uh, which seems to be a very brave joke on Tilney. Um, and it's, uh, he's out for he, uh, Aegis takes over at the end uh, in the folio 23. And in those 20 years, Tilney was out by then. So, you know, any uh, bit of getting tickled about seeing uh, uh, Tilney mess up into play selection or, or uh, put forward the wrong play, anything that, uh, that, may have referenced the office of the rebels would have been long gone by the next version. So it makes sense yeah. just to not have that. And and I think yeah. there are probably hundreds of examples yeah. that could be forwarded there. Um, well, let's. Yeah. And that gives yeah. us a Shakespeare as well. It, it sort of um, incidentally, that gives us a Shakespeare uh, whose plays have more topical references. And, and sometimes we have tended to, um, suggests that other playwrights are topical and that and that there's something about Shakespeare that rises above that um even at the time and that that's the quality which has made his writings last so long but but giving you know giving back a Shakespeare who's more who is more topical and more um part of the world in which he's writing I think also is a is refreshing yeah, well, you you point out that sometimes it's just a matter of censorship, and you you have to be careful in this world, in the Shakespeare, the living Shakespeare world, and the living Johnson world. You don't make a joke about the Scots as Johnson yes. did, right? And that all changes by the folio. But during the time they were writing, their head and, and it might not have been their authorial and uh, 
intention, it might be the sensor, you know, just black yeah. line. Yeah. Or, or, or the internalized kind of self-censorship. Yes. Um, you know, so, so, so um, one really small example is when Nerissa in The Merchant of Venice is talking to Portia about all her suitors. Uh, and she says um, something about the Scottish Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not even been particularly rude about the Scottish Lord. I mean, she's been quite rude, sort of cheerfully rude about every. All the suitors are hopeless uh, in this little sort of playful speech. Um, but by the by the folio, that's been taken out, and it just says other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that seems it's hard for me to think that that would necessarily be the sensor striking it through. That feels like a moment of of quite. Um, wary self-censorship in in the theater company that says actually maybe maybe it's not worth it it's not that good a yeah. joke so let's just let's let's just steer away from it yeah <laughs> we're gonna have to go to jail yeah that's right it's not worth <laughs> it enough <laughs> just to leave it well there's a lot of that now it's very topical now about uh, and among comedians when they're uh podcasting or whatnot you know the the, yeah. the uh sensitivity and uh having no what you know they used to be able to test out jokes kind of privately but in larger rooms but now that everybody has cameras now that everything's all uh, up on the internet yeah, that's before right. there isn't, there, that's uh, not there yeah that's interesting yes yeah. i like the idea you've just given me the thought that um uh maybe the the plays needed a kind of scottish sensitivity reader uh, to make sure that they were <laughs> yeah right. yeah no, that's nice exactly mm. well we just started macbeth in a graduate class that i have uh and uh, you know, I look at it, and if you don't know the background and the history and so forth, you go, golly, this is a very risky thing to put in front of a Scottish king. You know, uh, it just, it's dark, it's uh, superstitious, but then when you see, you know, the back, James's background and so forth and so on, it you see Shakespeare kind of catering to some of the, uh, if not vanities of the king, um, n- knowing where to go. Uh, what's, but it, yeah, it's know. a tightrope, though, isn't it? Because they've just sure. had the tragedy of Gowrie, which has obviously gone yeah. wrong in some way or another, um, yeah. uh, you know, and and as a result is is lost, sort of lost to us. So you would, as you say, it's quite it's quite a brave thing to go back into that Scottish history moment rather than to sort of steer steer clear. Uh, it's it, it's a difficult one to get to get right because you know, as you say, there are elements of Macbeth which which speak to James's interest in witchcraft and 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 uh, you know notions of kingship and so on but there's also all that stuff that um makes Scotland just seem hell you know hellish doesn't it? Just and, awful. you know you need you're going to need the english to put things right you're going to need an army yeah. from the english court to uh to get things right which is yeah. a kind of fantasy of course you know rather than the english going into Scotland, which they'd been trying to do all through the 16th century. In fact, it's the Scots who come into England. That's what happens at the end of Elizabeth's reign. But yeah. 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 Uh, oh, just fascinating stuff. Well, the first folio, and just correct me if I'm wrong, I think 10 years later, there was a second folio. And then right, there wasn't a third folio in, until the restoration, until Charles came in, which, of course, is the Civil War, which would have held a lot up. But it's quite a long period of time. And I'm sort of moving into the biography mm-hmm. part. Of, yeah. And uh, it, 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 it seems to me that the chances of, after the second printing, the chances of the uh, folio kind of falling into obscurity were fairly high during the following period. 
Yeah, I think that's right. It's a it's a really interesting sort of sliding doors kind of counterfactual in a way about the the his, history of Shakespeare. <clears throat> Excuse me, the history of Shakespeare, which looks from with hindsight as if it was always going to be this way, <clears throat> you know, and that the first folio stands at the beginning of this, you know, handing on uh, the the baton to this long series of. Uh, relay runners, you know, t- coming up into the 21st century. But there are lots of moments where that baton could be dropped. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and you're and and you're right to think that you know there's sort of 30 years when there isn't a new edition, but equally when there's no uh, for much of that time the theatres the, the public theatres are closed. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's a moment when the when the theatre is restored in 1660. Uh, and there's quite a scramble to get to get it back up and performing. Um, we know that uh, Killigrew, uh, Charles, Charles Killigrew, uh, one of the um, uh, courtiers who was charged with getting the theatre going, we know that the Killigrews had a, a first folio of Shakespeare mm-hmm. and that that must have been one of the go-to volumes to think, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? Mm-hmm. How are we going to get the theatre going when what play we're we going to put on we haven't done any of this for years um and it's it's Shakespeare that for probably for partly for practical reasons that the book is just there on the shelf with Shakespeare probably probably not on maybe on the spine maybe not um mm. but it, it 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 can be sort of got down and 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 used as a resource at this at that that point yeah, well, I, I talked with uh, Holger Syme and other uh, critics who do uh, work on the theater and uh, theater capacity, attendance, that kind of thing. But uh, what is repeated is that when it starts hopping, when things, when it gets popular, you need a lot of plays. Yeah. And what a happy thing to have 30, what is it, 30, yeah, well, there's a Charlie's, yeah, yeah, 36, 36 plus, yes. Yeah, uh, Charlie's and yeah. Crescent, yeah. Uh, but there you are. Well, that, there's, that you already have stock there. You already yeah. have, if, you know, if not in living memory, you know, you have people who, uh, probably in living memory, you do have performances of Shakespeare that, yeah. that are out there, uh, people who like them and so forth. So you have a built-in reception there among uh, maybe m- more middle uh, age, de- depending yeah. on how they viewed age and and so forth, and uh, and of course you have the other playwrights too, and you have yeah. the model, you have a, a a model for young, you know, uh, Dryden or uh, you know who's yeah. building his own, and all the others that uh, came along there, Congreve and uh, you know through the 18th century, those Restoration play playwrights who are so brilliant, uh, and uh, of course who felt that they could improve upon uh, the uh, kind of uh, raw material, but. Mm. Yeah, what a great treasure to have if you need to get something out there and put it into play, a pre-written play that you know was yeah. already successful. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think probably Shakespeare's ability to write for women, parts of women characters, gets a new lease of life when there are women actors, which is also one of the big changes, in, of course, in the Restoration. Um, yeah, yeah so, the, so, so, that's, that's a little off topic, but... I I just am interested in this because the uh, of the uh, fluidity, you know, the the, the ability to p- put women in these positions that and you know that 
there there is a, a femininity and that this is very kind of uh pushing the envelope on a lot of things but it seemed to be very easy a very easy segue to make as you're pointing out well it's 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 interesting when you hear um you know modern day uh f- female actors talking about these roles mm-hmm. and um often they express a kind of incredulity really that these were not written for for women to perform originally mm-hmm. um there's a great there's a great quotation from Janet Sussman who, who just says i can't believe that a um a male a, y- a young man played cleopatra now of, of course the young man did play cleopatra but it's a sort of it's interesting to hear from people who have to women who have to inhabit these roles mm-hmm. um a kind of counter to some of that work very important feminist work that happened uh, maybe in the 1980s and 1990s, which pointed out that the the theatre was an all male space, mm-hmm. that the majority probably of audiences and theatre makers and actors and writers were were male, and that this was a sort of echo masculine echo chamber. Um, but that isn't how it seems um, uh, to to people who, who whose job it is to make these women compelling and and sort of three-dimensional in the modern theater yeah well i was mainly referencing the restoration theater uh yeah yeah quickly yeah. brought it and of course some of the mores and standards of course you know uh, kate's final speech those things that are bothersome to um modern uh to, to all of us you know the idea of how to deal problematic uh, and uh yes yes so <clears throat> the um but you talk a, a good bit, and I want to go into some of this the, in the uh, biographical portion of, uh, you know, that great uh, uh, book years ago, Used Books. You know, you look into uh, how the folio is used by its owners, and it's mm-hmm. just fascinating stuff. Yeah, and it's partly really being really interested in the in the period of, of the books, the life of these books, before they became super valuable. So um, I've come to think of a period uh, of about maybe 150 or so years after the publication of the first folio, when when it is um, uh, less uh, formally a, a book called Master William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies, and exists um, in middling kind of libraries uh, as a book that is um less valuable than the later folios so less valuable than the second third or fourth and less valuable when we get to the 18th century than the modern editions like those of Rowe or Pope or um Johnson so it has this long period when it's just really a second hand book um and because of that uh it that's a time when it it you can actually see marks of its of its use um sometimes quite uh, intensively annotated or underlined or commonplace, sometimes just kind of doodled on or with sort of scraps of food or cat paw prints or, you know, all, all these kind of um, vestiges of, of daily life. And that and it's partly because that's so far from the environment in which we see these books now uh, that it's absolutely uh, charming to see uh, and to be reminded of a time when this worked like a book, that's to say something that you got off the shelf and had a look at and uh, was part of uh, a, a normal world around you and sometimes marked by by that world. 
Yeah. Um, the, and I, I love, you know, that 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 term used books that, you know, Carlo Mazzio and, and Bill Sherman and lots of book historians have given us as a an alternative as a point about saying there's lots more you can do with books than read them. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are used books in, in, in really, you know, lovely, lovely ways. Um, I teach the Bible in my uh, classroom text. It works just perfectly to prop my microphone up here. And I was taught, as, <laughs> I always feel like I'm going to be punished because we were taught as children not to put anything on the Bible. It was irreverent. Uh, but this is a text version. It's not one of those uh, Sunday school versions. So I feel pretty yes. comfortable, but it's perfect for me. But anyway, I'm using it that way right now. I'll yeah. uh, later use it to teach class. But yep. uh, uh, but it's that kind of thing. And the idea of a first folio sitting in somebody's uh, on the coffee table, end table, yes. You know, and there where you could spill a glass of wine or a coffee or yeah, whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, there's a wonderful copy in the Folger Library where Elizabeth Oakle, who is a child perhaps of about eight or nine years old, has done an amazing drawing uh, on the page which has the names of the actors in the King, in the Chamber's Men, in the King's Men, with a, a lovely sort of Queen, Queen Anne house and a chimney with smoke coming out and a, you know windows and uh, uh, showing that children's drawings have not really changed over sort of three hundred years, but also seemingly to suggest you know either she was allowed to do this to keep her quiet, you know, lying on the floor in the library, or the book was just around and it was, you know, easy for her to find. Whichever it is, it it, it makes it clear this was not a, probably not an absolutely prized possession kept away from from everybody, uh, everybody else in the house. Yeah, yeah, that's so, so interesting. Well, I wanted also to spend just a little bit of time talking about your uh the uh, uh <laughs> you've taken some journeys but the uh one here that's fascinating to me the one to uh, scotland to a place that you where you know someone says we have a first folio and you're thinking uh i just love it i i love your attitude toward this i i have to go but i'm pretty sure i'm going to have to disappoint a lot of people and it's going to be a diversion from what i'm doing but that yeah. that narrative we're going back now to the um yeah first book yeah. But yeah no i mean it's it's a really good sign of how you know how how wrong your assumptions uh <laughs> can be um and also that you know this is a this is a book that has had huge amount of work done on it for you know it's been very valuable for the last 250 years uh for the last 130 years we've been studying it quite intensively um, we've got lists of where these books are and you know what they what they look like. Uh, most recently, the brilliant um, catalogue by um, Eric Rasmussen and Anthony James West. So it, it seemed very very unlikely that that this would be an unknown copy uh, of, of of the first folio. Um, but yeah, I was persuaded to go up to Mount Stuart House, which has been the house of the uh, Marquises of Butte, um, who made a lot of money in building Cardiff docks in South Wales, in their very splendid library, looked at this, a copy that was, is a very interesting 18th century copy. It's split, it's the only one I'm aware of that is from that time split into three volumes, so split into comedies, histories and tragedies. That seems a way of making it a bit more like one of the 18th century editions and a little bit more portable, a little bit more manageable as an object. Yeah, yeah. So instead of being 900 pages long, 
Uh, it's sort of 300 pages, so these much, much slimmer volumes. And with a, an inscription at the, at the beginning from Isaac Reed, who is a sort of marginal uh, 18th century man of letters, saying he had it from uh, a man called John Henderson, who is very big in the in the trade of uh, what's called sophistication or vampment. That's to say, you know, making up uh, complete copies or good clean copies by breaking up dirty dirty ones or or washing and or washing them. So he's Henderson has got a good business in um, producing uh, nice folios, um, mashup folios, and and here's one uh, that that had belonged to Isaac Reed. So yeah, I was completely wrong. Um, but you knew uh, when you you knew when you saw the paper that something was going on here that it was not a a nineteenth century uh, cheaper paper version and yeah, that interested absolutely. me. Uh, I missed the class in graduate school on the history of paper, and so yeah. it seems to me that you've had to in all of all of the kinds of research that you've had to do you know, uh, literary research, historical research, uh, looking into all kinds of things, uh, geographical elements of all of this, that also you've had to uh, develop some ex expertise on things like paper and print and ink and th those types of things, which are in themselves very fascinating. Yeah, I, the, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not an absolute technical expert on this, but I knew that um, so, so the paper that the folio is printed on is is linen paper, linen rag paper, and that does feel very different, feels and smells and looks very different from nineteenth um, century wood pulp paper. And that's that's not a difficult. If you've got them both in front of you, you'd be able to see that difference quite quite readily. Um, but but when I had um, so so my instinct was more than my instinct i was i was pretty convinced that this this book or these this three volume book was a genuine uh first folio but i knew that i would have to do a proper uh detailed check of that that yeah. i would have to check yeah. every page every variant yeah. i would have to look at watermarks i would have to look at all kinds of things that i sort of knew about at second hand i'd read about other people doing that mm -hmm. but i'd never before looked at a first folio which hadn't already been corroborated mm -hmm. as a first folio so i had a great opportunity to learn that stuff and to to learn to do it and to to sort of um underpin that instinct that this was genuine with the with with the detailed work that that uh, that proves it yeah so that was yeah. i mean it was a, it was a great thing an amazing opportunity to have to learn to do that so yeah yeah, well, we're working on digitizing some of our rare Bibles in our uh, collection in, in our school, and uh, the things you the things you learn. But uh, of course, for my students and others who uh, are not into this quite as much, uh, of course, the binding is a separate thing, and so many are rebound. So you have yeah. you have 18th century binding on a 16th century uh, or 17th century uh, yeah. print uh, paper, and then you can have uh, a division and a very well done division of the entire first folio in three volumes. Yeah. Right. So as in your case, so there are lots of varieties. I think, yes. the, you know, the Folger has 86 or 89. I can't remember, but a lot. And, uh, there's not all it's they're, they're different. They're very different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's partly because bindings don't last as long as books. Yeah. So that, that they last less long than 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 paper, and they need to be renewed. 
Um, and also that people, when they, you know, bindings were originally, you know, the way that uh, owners made their uh, made their copies fit into their own library and made them bespoke to them. And so when people bought them uh, from previous owners, they often wanted to rebind them mm-hmm. in their own style or in their own colour. Yeah, so we've got very few first folios in in early bindings, in 17th century bindings, maybe um, m- maybe only four, five or six. The majority are in 18th century um, bindings, usually very in pretty good condition, or or later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, uh, uh, extraordinarily interesting to me uh, in uh, the way that uh, uh, I you know. I think you see, you've probably seen a history of what we would consider to be great abuse of some of these folios where pages have maybe been cut out. Somebody might have wanted to, um, I don't know, to to do various and sundry things with it. Uh, Just, you know, uh, blithely, I'm just completely unaware of uh, where this is going. And did you run across any uh, truly egregious examples of a, a first folio that was actually destroyed uh, sort of haphazardly by an owner somewhere along the way. So certainly we know that there are lots and lots of folios that have been, um, uh, you know, sort of ch- chopped up and, and pages inserted to, to you know, um, make repairs and, and, and all that kind of thing. So so there's, there, there hasn't been a... Um, it, it's only relatively recent that our sense that these books should be kept intact somehow. That's that's a relatively recent part of its history. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that prior history where people were more interested in, um, uh, you know, tidying up or cleaning or um, vamping in, in different ways. That's, that's quite an interesting history. I don't feel offended. I don't feel offended by that. There are a couple of examples. There are sometimes, one of the things I enjoyed looking at was where people have, what people have done when text is missing. And uh, some people employ uh, wonderful, skilled facsimilists. Um, uh, The Victorian John Harris is often named in this. You know, Harris does these pen facsimiles of type, which are absolutely um, undetectable. And they were so undetectable that Harris, who I think had no... um, intent to deceive at all, but wanted to do a perfect job, ended up doing a tiny signature on the pages that he had facsimiled. So there's that at one end. And then there's some people who have just sort of copied out in their own best handwriting. Um, There's a copy in Oxford, which has the last leaf of Cymbeline in that. Um, And then there are people who've just, in any which way, provided bits of text. There's a very nice, title page which just has somebody that the, the the corner big corner is torn off so somebody has just added shape spears um but just it, without any attempt to make it look you know as if it's part of the original title page and that's a kind of interesting that those are different ways of thinking about um what what's the the great the fundamental question about this book which is the strange tension between the the object and the contents that's a bit of a that's a bit of a problem about rare books more generally and about book history you know do, do we think the book is a a material object in time or do we think of it as a transcendent 
um, set of ideas and, and words that can be uh, sort of, uh, you know, that, that live across across time. And, you know, we've tended to think about Shakespeare as the latter. Mm. The first folio makes us think about Shakespeare kind of as the, as the former. Yeah, it's just so ironic to me. And I'm thinking on a very uh, personal level that we have all thought about, you know, if we, uh, you get to the age where you have the experience of cleaning out a house of a, of a relative who's passed away or your, your own parents who passed away in my case. Uh, and they had this beautiful dining table with the, the pieces where you could expand it. And we used it, uh, you know, and uh, we had a dining room and it's this wood, you know, wonderful just uh, oak uh, type, th and it had been passed down, I think, a generation or two, you know, in our family. And so we're trying to figure out what to do with it because none of my uh, brothers or anybody in our family had space for it. It's just, and certainly me in Japan. And we called an antique dealer and she came in and she said, these things used to be just fabulously valuable and okay. they have nobody wants them anymore. Right. So there we have something that seems to be, to have eternal value, just yeah. drop off. And then you have this book that people might use to prop the door open and do any yeah. number of things with, yeah. you know, you go, golly, gee, if we just kept this uh, and where is it, you know, is it in the attic? But in the end, these, these folios end up getting spread out like all the way to Scotland, but I'm sure all over the place. Uh, That's right. So there are folios near, near, near to you in Japan. You know, the majority of folios have ended up uh, in in North America, particularly in Washington, D.C. at the Folger. Mm -hmm. um, but we have, you know, so far as we know, one folio in the continent of Africa, which is in uh, Cape Town in South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, uh, three in Australia and New Zealand. Um, uh, a number in a number in Europe. Um, so yeah, they they have spread and they've spread in different waves. A colonial English wave, uh, yeah. which includes South Africa and New Zealand and the Australian ones, yeah. and then a sort of Gilded Age American moneyed wave, which is the Folger ones and pretty much all the ones that go to America go in the end of the 19th century yeah. uh, into the early 20th century. And then a much a later one, the, 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 the copies that go to Japan mostly go in the 1960s and 70s yeah. in that period, don't they? Uh, and, and perhaps a little bit later. And now we're looking at, you know, if, 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 a, if a book comes up for sale, if a copy comes up for sale now, uh, it used to be for, for for a long time that they that um, the auctioneers would go to Hong Kong, mm -hmm. thinking that they would find a, a buyer. Mm -hmm. uh, there'd been a question about um, uh, Arab sort of Gulf states um, purchases, although we don't know of any of those. Um, mm -hmm. And um, uh, you know, other so so, so all, all this is a long way of saying um, mostly they follow they follow money. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So they're, they're a good economic sort of barometer um, and they follow sort of Anglophile tendencies as well. You know, what, what, at what point, you know, I was really fascinated by the one that was sold during lockdown by um, Sotheby's. Uh, by Christie's, sorry, by Christie's, mm -hmm. uh, which reached a, a sort of um, record price, nearly $10 million, the hammer price. And that did seem a kind of, you know, at a time of great uncertainty, this is like a sort of um, putting your money in gold rather than bonds or something yeah. uh, that you would tend to Shakespeare. 
Yeah, it'll hold its value. Uh, it, it's just amazing. Uh, what also there's the in in Japan among us is kind of famous example of uh, Meisei University, and is yeah. is it eight uh, that they have? It? So they had twelve, but 12. they've actually sold. They've sold two in in re yeah. very recent times. So yeah. so that's a sort of transfer back as well. So that so they it's not all one in one direction. Right. Um, well, the, whoever did that did. I think those may have been acquired during the economic bubble of the eighties, but I'm not I sure at all. Right. Yeah. But there was a, quite a lot of uh, buying during that time of uh, yeah. art and so forth. Yeah. And if they did it then, they probably it was probably a very good investment because I'm sure they didn't buy individual editions for ten million dollars. You know, they're different sure, that's quality. True. Yeah. Sure, that's true. Uh there, there was an appreciation during that time. Most definitely. Most uh, definitely. Yeah. And who would have you know, who uh who makes the you know, if you make the argument to uh you, on that level, you'd have to uh, probably get a board of trustees, uh, uh, what's called the region in Japan. You'd have to have pretty high level um, uh, green light. And probably the green light's coming from somebody in business who may be completely affable to humanities and all of that stuff. But we're spending this much you know, on Shakespeare. It seems yeah. a little... And now you come back and go, maybe one of the best business decisions made in various places were uh, these folios. Uh, but uh, it, it just, well, I don't know. Who who would have thought that these things would have skyrocketed in value uh, in this who way? Who would have thought it? I mean, it's an amazing yeah. story. Emma, thank you so much. And this is your, uh, you're returning to our program. You're one of the most popular speakers out there, speaking of popularity. And I was so happy when you agreed to come on and all of the, you know, my colleagues in Japan and the international audience and so forth are just going to be delighted to hear this stuff and to look into two uh, books with new material and uh, giving you an enormous amount of understanding of the printing and the history of this, perhaps one of the, maybe the most influential text uh, produced in English language history. So thank Fantastic. you so much. Thanks so much, Tom. Yeah. Thank you.